Hi, I'm Cindy Wilson. I'm a people and organization development professional, and I'm passionate about the capacity of human beings and what that means for organizations. I started this podcast with the aim of working with industry experts to share their knowledge and to provide exposure and opportunities for individual growth and development. I want to better our experience in organizations, and this work can only start with the individual. Join me on Leading the Ship as we chart this journey of growth and self-actualization together. Whether we appreciate it or not, conflict is a natural part of life. And since it is inherent in the workplace, it is important that we develop the skills needed to not only identify conflict, but to handle them thoughtfully, impartially, and efficiently. Our ability to address and resolve conflicts will either enable or limit our success as leaders. Today, I'm chatting with Dr. Paul, who is an employee relations and protocol compliance specialist, a workplace peer mediation expert, and a mediation trainer and facilitator. She agreed to speak with us on leading the ship on conflict management in leadership and shares some valuable advice, not just for leaders, but for anyone who may be experiencing or may experience conflict. All right, Dr. Z, thank you so much for joining us today as we're talking about leading in the midst of conflict on the Leading the Ship podcast. Um, I don't know if you just want to start off by telling us a bit about yourself and what you do. Sure, Cindy. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I think this podcast is just such an amazing initiative. Um, so to tell you a little bit about myself, um, I'm a research enthusiast an HR generalist, um, a mediation trainer, certified family and a civil mediator. I love working with people. I love mediation. It, it, I studied mediation at the master's level and I just love training. It's something that I do part-time and it is a very important part of my career. And just having that ability to meet persons from different walks of life gives me you know a sense of belongingness i feel so embedded in that part of my life and i just love meeting new people learning things from them and training and i really love mediation and all that it has to offer not only personally but as well in, as well as in my professional life yeah so mediation is really important for for individuals as well as organizations um and you know, when we are dealing with conflict. But, you know, just to, to start us off and to make sure that we're speaking the same language, could you offer us a definition of what you consider to be conflict? You know, what it feels like, looks like, um, how it's experienced by others? Sure. So many um, theorists and researchers spoke about conflict and they would have had so many theories that contribute 
to our understanding today about what conflict is and when we can recognize it. But what really sticks with me is that when there's a conflict, there's a level of uncomfortableness and you will feel it. And one of the definitions that really stuck with me over the years, I think the theorists were, if I'm recalling correctly, that was since 1988, Putnam, Knapp and Davis. It's a really old definition, but it stuck with me and it went something like this. It's an express struggle between interdependent parties. This is about interpersonal conflict, of course, where they perceive incompatible goals, scarce resources, or for one reason or another, they believe that the other party is somehow inhibiting them from achieving those goals. And when you look at the dynamic nature of conflict and you look at how it is so multi-layered in terms of what you experience and what it really looks like in theory, you really see so many aspects of what they spoke about in that particular context or from those lens. And what is so important to me or really sticks out to me is that you feel it, that level of perception is manifested through your, your you know, you feel uncomfortable. Um, there's some sort of difference between you and that individual, or if it's team conflict or interpersonal conflict, you do feel, and when you look at the type of different types of conflict, there's relationship conflict, data conflict, value conflict, so many types of conflict, you see some aspect of that incompatible goal of feeling that someone is inhibiting you or keeping you from achieving that goal, or there's some scarce resource that both of us want to really um, access, and we feel as if someone is keeping us from that. But what is most important, you feel that difference, you feel that something is wrong. And if it is, if it stays there and it is allowed to fester, it can, you know, gain that momentum and there can be an upward spiral and, and, and a downward spiral, sorry. And we need to really handle it in a way the way there's an upward spiral, which is more, you know, positive. But if I were to really narrow it down, I would say that you would feel it. Sometimes it's felt between both parties, sometimes by one, and sometimes it's expressed where persons say that they are feeling this, but there's a struggle there. And I think once we work on that and we keep the communication open, we can work to really improve upon what we are feeling and being and be constructive about how we approach this to really treat with this, that momentum that's building. Definitely. You spoke about um, that uncomfortable feeling that you experience. And I know that I um, have been guilty of it, and I'm sure many other persons of avoiding conflict. Why, I mean, as humans, why do we continuously avoid conflict, even though we know that dealing with it head on um, is the better thing to do? There are many reasons why persons may avoid conflict. Con avoidance is one of the five types of conflict management um, techniques or responses. So when persons are in conflict, they can do one of five things. They can compete, avoid, accommodate, collaborate, or compromise. Avoidance is very popular, and most times it can be for a number of reasons. And some of those reasons could include, for example, some persons were naturally um, socialized to avoid conflict. They were socialized and maybe it's an innate response or reflex response that it's innate to them and the way they were socialized that whenever they feel that level of uncomfortableness, it's like dangerous territory. So I feel this is getting uncomfortable. So you know what? I want to avoid this difficult conversation 
or I want to starve off this feeling of being helpless or uncomfortable. Another reason persons might avoid conflict is because they would have evaluated with whom they're in conflict and for what reason they're in conflict. For example, if I'm in conflict with my boss, does this person have uh, some sort of authority and power over what my job situation or status looks like tomorrow? Does this person have some sort of role in my appraisal? Does this person have the temperament that what they say goes, it's either, either ship up or ship out? Am I in conflict with my spouse? I love this individual. I want to spend the rest of my life with them and I want us to avoid conflict at all costs. So some persons in that evaluation, they look to see, should I assert my rights or my beliefs or should I really take a passive more nonchalant approach so that the rights and the beliefs of the other individual with whom I'm in conflict are more prioritized. So some persons, when they do that evaluation, they decide, do I value my role and my rights or do I value this relationship more? So it all depends on with whom I'm in conflict. Another reason why persons avoid is because, you know what? This is just not important to me. I just choose to live my life in a way that, that, that doesn't put me in a position where I'm always in a situation where I'm in conflict and I rather just let it be. So it all depends on what walk of life you may come from. It all depends on the way you were socialized. Mm -hmm. It all depends about, on your value system. It all depends on what if you may have gone through trauma in your earlier years and maybe you just believe I've had enough for my lifetime. So a number of things can be the contributing factors or variables that cause persons to avoid conflict. Whatever those reasons are, I believe that there's still a ground zero that we need to take into consideration. And that ground zero is the first thing, with whom am I in conflict? And what is the source or the deep-rooted issues here? Or what are the issues here? When you evaluate that along a continuum, you can move through those five conflict management styles and decide what is best. Or you can also look at some people think that it's okay to have a dominant style. Every time I'm in conflict, I would compete because I have to win. Competition has its place, but it may not be the right approach all the time. Avoidance is one of those styles. Maybe avoidance will allow me to live to fight another day. So I think it is important to understand that there are different ways or responses that people have about dealing with conflict, educating yourself, about what those different ways are, and it's still in theory, conflict management styles or responses or techniques. Keeping in mind that having a dominant style is not the best, it is important to dance and move through these different approaches because each approach helps you deal with a different person on a different day. And sometimes always remember that avoidance, competition, collaboration, accommodation, compromising, they all have their place. But go back to that ground zero. With who am I, am I in conflict? Is avoidance best for the situation? Maybe I can avoid today, but if this conflict persists or this difficult conversation does not really benefit that's mutually acceptable or mutually beneficial to the both of us, maybe I need to consider a different approach. And sometimes you, the person who has that information and knows how to respond, maybe doing things the correct way, but maybe you're in conflict with someone who 
may have just been hurt, traumatized, and may have been dealing with a lot and may not have the information that you have. And you may feel that you're hitting your head against a block. That's okay too. It just means give it time, give it space. And maybe today I can let this go and avoid. And maybe should it come up in the future, I can try another approach. So avoidance has its place. None of these styles is bad. We can't say it's bad, we can't say it's the best. What we say, what I say, learn to dance. Evaluate your situation, not only at the beginning, but throughout the engagement. Learn when to just take things slowly. Learn when to end things for the day and come back. And if you are a supervisor or a leader, there may be a situation where, because of the position you hold or the persons to whom you are accountable, you may need to compete and tell persons, you know what? We cannot compromise on this policy or we cannot compromise on this expectation of you. And if it's an employment situation, you have to earn your salary. So sometimes depending on the position that you are in as a leader. So it's not what you do, it's how you do it. And that consistent evaluation, that dance, moving through those steps and keeping the communication lines open. And I think that's very important when you're thinking about this entire situation holistically. I really like that. Um, in a previous episode, when I spoke about conversational intelligence, we used that same analogy about dancing and it's about being flexible yes. and you know being able to adapt to the situation that you're in and not sticking to one style. So I think that that is really important. But you know that you know sometimes we um, we latch onto one style. And we create greater conflict um, instead of, uh, you know, trying to address the, the root cause of the situation. What are some of the strategies that a person, an individual, or even an organization could um, put in place to realize the more positive outcomes um, of conflict? That's such a good question. And from my experience and being in the work world for so many years, and even in my private life and circumstances, I have realized that if you want a behavior change, there needs to be a culture change. And with a culture change, there needs to be a mindset change. So where do we start from? Now, in any organization, there are written rules and there are expectations that may not be written, but it governs the expectation for behavior. I think when you're looking at a formal establishment, an entity that is responsible for the behavior of a mass group of people, its constituents, I think it's important that there must be written rules about expectations for behavior that can lead to desirable outcomes. So in an organizational setting, I would say it is important that the organizational culture is built upon that type of communication and that type of written governance and structure so that all constituents of this organization, whether it's an, an unionized environment or not, there is somewhere written and understood that this is the expectation. Should we engage in that? Should we find ourselves in that level of disagreement? And I think that is so important, whether there's an RMU, a recognized majority union there, whether there are multiple RMUs, well, there can be multiple, but multiple unions, and maybe there's an RMU event on, on one end, or it's not a unionized environment. It's important for us to have that information there that's written. It must be a reference. And if it is not written, everyone at your organization, somewhere in the vision, the mission to avoid mission or vision drift, that understanding needs to be written somewhere. 
So if it's not part of a policy, it should be part of our core value system, our core goals, our core beliefs somewhere. If it's not written in policy, persons can have it as a reference on the intranet, somewhere that staff can refer to, refer to this understanding or expectation. Another important thing is ensuring that this, the lower level managers, the mid-level supervisors are also singing that same tune. You have to ensure that each person at that level in your organization are in tuned and um, big supporters of that internal policy. Once that happens at those different levels of management, it ensures that the culture that is engendered throughout the organization is established. So it is, it is, it is very important for us to ensure that the mindset is there with the person who are at the top. That mindset is communicated through regulations, rules, and expectations for behavior written and otherwise um, supported through a reference. That is sh a shared understanding, a shared value that is not only on paper, but you are seeing it in the way that in exemplary behavior. And then they hold other persons accountable at all levels and even the constituents of the organization. So I think that is very, very important. What tends to happen when we do not have some sort of written reference or some sort of established cultural belief that persons can refer to, different constituents of the organization that comes from different walk, walks of life may come with their own understanding about what they believe should happen or what it should look like. And that the way they were socialized is filters into that. So some persons may come into an organization with their own understanding, which is fine, but we need to ensure that at the organizational level that we are on the same page, we value the same things. And I think that is so important because it leads to that, that mindset leads to that culture change, that culture change that is drilled in even in our practice. And there's exemplary behavior and there's support at all levels. And then you can see that once different persons who are in exemplary positions and even the constituents of the organization, the employees, once they start to practice that in keeping with what the organization engenders as a culture, then we see small bits of behavior changes. And once that continues to be repeated and encouraged and all persons are empowered to embrace that belief and that support system of open communication and whatever is pertinent and neutral in that context, I think the behavior becomes so ingrained in those individuals, it's locked in their intelligence. And then you get a mass number of people who are really complying with what that vision is, what that rule is, what that regulation is. And you avoid that mission and vision drift, or you ensure that you have a dinner regulation where persons can refer to. And I think that is so important because if a culture does not embody that understanding of ensuring that the way we treat with conflict or situations that are difficult, it means that persons will be operating as centralized little sections of the organization, and there will not be a unified front as to how you handle that conflict. In a, in a um, unionized environment, these things happen with constant collaboration with the union, and you ensure that you keep the communication lines open. And I know that union culture is one thing and I support all union membership. I understand the importance of having a union, whether your union is good, bad or indifferent. It's important that employees subscribe and you know they, they support their union. But another part of that culture is that ensuring that all stakeholders are empowered and the union is one arm of that. 
So engaging the union at every step of this process, apart from what the collective agreement may have down there, once the union sees that you are really on that level with them to ensure that the way they treat with conflicts, as small as they may be, once they see that, you want to have that better cooperation with the union as well as the constituents of that union, which are also your employees. So I think it is important, just to wrap up that, my response, it's important for us to have a clear vision. That mindset needs to be in tandem with that belief. You have that cultural um, outlook and that shared vision. Persons exhibit in leadership roles and management roles. They exhibit that exemplary behavior and you ensure that everyone is on board with that view and you have a participative democracy as to what this handling should look like. I hope I answered that question appropriately and I didn't go off too much. No, 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 that was, that was really good. You know, actually setting those very clear expectations and having that common understanding throughout is important, not only just for, um, well, for conflict management, um, but also in all spheres of organizational life, including um, managing performance, et cetera. So, you know, those, those points are really, really important. Oftentimes conflict though takes place more on an on individual level. So even in your families, your personal relationships, um, you know, you, you will definitely experience conflict and if not dealt with, could permeate into other areas of your life, including, you know, your organizational life. As an individual, you know, what kinds of tools can I employ to deal with conflict um, in a positive way? So, and as well, maybe, you know, pass on that knowledge to the younger generation so that they understand how to deal with conflict so we are not in a, in a war with each other. I think it starts with our outlook and the examples we have been exposed to. So some persons, depending on the way they were socialized and the examples they were exposed to, whether it's a friend or two family members, they may only know one way and they may be stuck in that frame of mind. It's also a saying that hurt people hurt people. What is the extent of your trauma from your childhood? Um, who you are to the, today is a sum total of your experiences, both past, present, and ongoing. So if I were to give advice to someone as to how they can be individual soldiers or individual um, effective, what would I say? Effective persons in handling their own conflicts or conflicts that concern them. I think there's so much, that is such a multi-layered response because mm -hmm. you need to know where you are. You need to know your identity. You need to know your struggles. You need to know your hurts. Because sometimes even when you try, this baggage can really weigh you down. Where am I in my life? What is my, who am I? What identity do I subscribe to? Or what is my identity? What have I, what have I been through that makes it difficult for me to have difficult conversations? Because in my life, I view conflict as an opportunity. I want to talk it out. But sometimes the persons with whom I may have that difference with, they may not, so, they may not have been socialized that way or may not want to talk it out. In a supervisory role, we may have no other choice to talk it out because we know that most importantly, that the outlook and the final decision sort of depends on how to say it. 
what I'm trying to say is that in the supervisory sense, if we do not talk it out, there may be a little bit of not demanding, but it's a requirement because if it starts to affect the bottom line, then you know you need to get really involved there. So there are so many things to understand, but the first yeah. place I think persons should start is knowing what are your challenges, knowing what are your hurts, what are your traumas, dealing with that, understanding your self-identity, understanding more about yourself, because the greatest asset to any situation is yourself, because you bring yourself to the table. And if there's a difficulty in bringing yourself to the table or bringing yourself to have this difficult conversation, you need to deal with that inner struggle. Once you understand clearly who you are, you have a clear idea as to what your triggers are, what your challenges are, what have I been through that contributes to the way I respond or react to this uncomfortable feeling or the differences with others, then maybe I can be more emotionally intelligent and be mindful as to what our triggers in that exchange or dynamic that makes me feel this way. So knowing more about yourself is so important. Once you have bridged that gap, you need to understand the importance of communication, having that feedback loop, being able to listen, try not little things. So if I know who I am and I know that this may bother me or this is a trigger, with whom am I in conflict? Am I going through the situation where I feel that my rights are being maybe infringed? Is it that serious? Is it not that serious? But even if it is that serious, we need to engage. We need to have a very open conversation. And I need to leave that feedback loop open, meaning that we need to turn take and turn yield. We can't speak at the same time. If we speak at the same time, we may not be arguing, but it may sound like we are argue, arguing because it feels as if this person wants to speak over me and I'm not getting my point out. Let's set rules for this conversation. Let's take turns of speaking. Also, I don't only want to allow you to speak just to give you airtime, but when you're speaking, I want to truly listen for what you're saying and what you're not saying. I also want to ensure that even, this, even though this conversation feels uncomfortable, I want to value the importance of this dynamic taking an upward spiral and not going in the direction of a downward spiral. So what can I do to help that? I need to listen attentively. I need to listen with my eyes, my posture. I need to really maybe be more mindful that persons have a different point of view and maybe we can agree to disagree. Am I a bigot? Do I look at things differently? Do I judge people? Does this opinion contradict mine? That's okay, that's all part of what life is about. But I need to appreciate differences, appreciate different value systems and cultural systems. Or you know what, maybe that's difficult for me to do, so maybe I should take a decision. For example, I personally do not discuss politics and religion outside of, outside of small circles. I do not discuss it publicly. All my friends know this about me. I rather not do that because I believe that people's value system are intrinsically tied to who they are and what they believe. And the best of friends may talk about something and they can leave that conversation pretending it's okay. Yeah. I rather not go there. So I don't wanna have that conversation. So I think on the interpersonal level, there's so much to evaluate. And to round up my response, I would say, know who you are, do a deep dive introspection, understand your triggers, know more about your identity, know more about what triggers you, 
when you engage in that discussion, ensure that the engagement is healthy, that it can end up in an upward spiral. Listen attentively. Ensure that you turn take and you turn yield. You take turns speaking. Be open. You may not agree, but agree to disagree and leave that there. If it is too deep for you to, that you cannot feel that you can keep it separate, then just make own rules for the way you live your life, like I have done. I don't want to discuss that. I don't discuss that because it never ends well. So let's just leave that alone. And the final thing I would say is that it is important for you to really take into consideration with whom am I in conflict? Do I value this relationship? Or do I value my view over that person's view? You need to evaluate with whom you're in conflict and what the conflict is about and make some serious decisions as to where this could go and where you would like to see it go. Definitely. The part that resonates most with me, I think, is that real need for self-awareness and the work that you have to do on your personal self to, to get to the point where you understand your triggers and you can see when they're coming and know how to deal with them accordingly. Yes. We've spoken a lot about, um, you know, strategies that we can employ when we have to deal with conflict. Um, but, you know, if we could flip it just a little bit to what are the absolute no's when you're in a conflict situation? What are the absolute no's that you have to keep in mind so that things won't escalate negatively? So an absolute no, which I will start with, it's a pet peeve for me, disrespectful and overly loud persons. That is so difficult. I can have the hardest conversation. I can be having the most difficult conversation with someone I know may not like me. But that's okay, that that does not bother me. What bothers me is that we do not respect ourselves or, or each other enough that we, we engage in an exchange that is not healthy and it really leads in a downward spiral. And I think what is very important, there's no need to shout, there's no need to be little, and there's no need to be disrespectful. There are some persons who are so disrespectful you are having the most constructive exchange, but I think they so want a reaction out of you. They are so upset that you have taken that position, taken that position, or you live your life in a way where you rather not, you know, engage in any infradig exchanges that's beneath your post or your, or your standing. And they engage in ad hominem attacks, meaning that they move away from the issue and they attack the individual. And they may bring up personal things or they may bring up things that they know. I believe in separating the person from the issue, whether or not that person is my friend, someone that may not like me, someone that I may not favor that much. I believe that we are both, we need to be respectful and we are adults and we are responsible for what comes out of our mouth and we are responsible for the dynamic that is created by this whirlwind of exchange. And I think it is very important. So a big no for me is shouting being disrespectful, being hurtful, raising your voice. Another no is privacy and confidentiality. Now, privacy is where you have an engagement that is away from public eyes, and it is just you and these personal individuals, these stakeholders to the situation, or the parties to the situation. So I think privacy is important. Confidentiality goes a little further than privacy, it means that whatever we discussed in private does not leave the space. And I think as 
our culture, it, it's, it's okay that we share things that were discussed in private, but when you do that, you're breaching confidentiality. So another big no is remembering that whatever we discuss, it is private to that individual, it is private to the situation, to this context. So avoid um, infrared behavior, avoid ad hominem attacks, attacking the person and not dealing with the issue. Do not breach confidentiality. Whether the situation calls for privacy or not, it is important for you to have private discussions unless it is a workplace environment and there's so many other rules. For example, if you're having discussions with persons, you may leave the door open, you may have a third party there who is not there to contribute because there are so many things, there's so many different um, policies and acts that are out there now, sexual harassment acts and so on. So apart from those types of situations, you want to ensure that whatever is discussed is, remains strictly confidential. Another no is ensuring that you don't really listen for just listening's sake. You, re you really need to listen to understand and you need to listen with all of you. I would close by saying that another no as well, something that is very important that people tend to forget that we should not start to stereotype and be judgmental before the situation even starts to take that tool. Let me don't say tool, but start to, starts to develop. Because what tends to happen is it makes it difficult for you to even listen. It means that you already judge the situation as to where it's going to go. You've already judged the person. Go in with an open mind, an open heart, and someone who, who genuine, genuinely wants to make this work. Now, I make no promises. I have done this many times and it may not have ended up where you wanted to because I appreciate that sometimes the persons with whom I may be engaging with may not be at that level. They may be hurt and hurt people hurt people. They may be dealing with their own trauma, their own psychological challenges, their own challenges from childhood, the way they were socialized. This is the way they were taught to deal with the situation. And this, they kind of treat with that or wrap their mind around, okay, this can be a very comfortable, constructive conversation. We can agree to disagree. We can talk about things and have that difficult conversation. So remembering those things, now there are many others, but those are the things that I would think that, that should be at the forefront. And I think once we start to practice that, I want to end with one more final thing. Another thing as well is that some persons, I don't know if you noticed, um, they drink bush for someone else's fever. So for example, two persons are in conflict. Um, it's a party of two. Because you're in conflict with this person, I will avoid that person because of what I've heard. Don't get in that. Two persons have a conflict, stay out of it. If you are good with the two persons and they try to bring it up, say, hear yeah, what? It's your experience. It may not have been mine, but I don't want to get in that. I really care for you. I want you to know whatever we discuss. I will not discuss with that other person, but I want you to know I do not want to get involved. I think we need to be more independent with our thinking and really avoid a sort of clicking when it comes to dealing with situations like this. Because I think that so many misunderstandings come out of that that may not even be relevant or necessary. So try your best to stay independent of those conflicts. Now, there are some conflicts that there's no way to stay out of it. If it's human rights, if it's other situations where it's a supervisory situation, where the bottom line can be affected, well, of course. But I'm saying on the interpersonal level, that may not be in a work environment. And even if it's friends or colleagues, take this, take this practice. If it is with someone in management and someone else needs to get involved, 
do so and be open about it. But just remember that those things really affect the way you deal with every situation moving forward. So that's what comes to mind, Cindy. I think we share the, the same pet peeves that um, loudness and disrespectful behavior. I can't deal with that. Um, yes. Okay, so are there any specific strategies you think an organization should employ um, in building that culture where conflict is you know, dealt with positively? I know we spoke earlier about making sure that we have the, the written things, the written rules, the, the expectations very clearly spelled out, the core values, et cetera. But any other strategies that a company could employ that uh, would um, support a conflict resolution, conflict management type of culture? Definitely. Early on in my career, I started to do research on something called peer mediation. Most citizens think when they hear the word peer, when they hear the phrase peer mediation, they think about mediation in schools. And that has been the understanding for quite a number of years. However, my view is that wherever there's a peer, mediation should be there. So if there's a peer at work, in the home, amongst a group of friends in a team, whether that team is organizational um, in an organizational context or otherwise, I think once there's a pair, mediation can happen. Now, when people think about mediation, they always think about a third party, a neutral third party. That is so true. But what I want us to wrap our minds around is that the same way that peer mediation in school occurs, where a, 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 a student leader or someone who is good at or that someone else respects in the school environment is that third party for conflicts happening with colleagues or peers in the school environment. I think that is very important for the organization and it really saves the organization money. For many years, well, it has been considered that if there's a conflict, sometimes they may bring in a consultant or they may train persons in house to maybe help them be that third party. But I think one of the things that organizations are missing, and it is something I really, um, I prepared a training manual about that actually in 2012, is understanding that the first place to really treat with conflict apart from senior managers and, and, and role persons who are leaders being exemplary is empowering the persons underground. Because most times when there's a conflict underground and parties have an issue, they may go to their superior but how do we empower them where it is superior if it is really something really big and it's affecting the bottom line and finances? I think peer mediation is very important for organizations to really take stock and implement at the ground level. What does it involve? It involves ensuring that all of your staff are trained in mediation. You can bring in a consultant for that. You can help your organization understand what you value. And that needs to be a part of your vision, your mission, somewhere written in your rules. You can engage the union about it as well, where you educate them about the importance and about having those conversations, those difficult conversations, that although they are difficult, they can be constructive in the way they are handled and the outcome can be an, a constructive one. Because a lot of a manager's time, what 75% of a leader's time is spent in helping conflicts at, Manage persons at the lower level manage conflict, and there may be even conflict at the higher levels. So, what is important is empowering your staff to
to learn the importance and to value the importance of having difficult conversations, teaching them how to communicate effectively. And some persons may like, yeah, I have learned that, but you're not only teaching it to them in theory. You need to have simulations to show possible occurrences or circumstances that can happen and playing that out for them. What does this look like? Real life examples, bringing examples that people can maybe give anonymously that happens every day and let them really treat with that. When you bring that and you engender that at the lower levels, managers will be the ones working with them. And at that time, you're not only leading from the front line, but you're leading from within group. You have those difficult conversations with your manager. You have those difficult conversations with each other. You see the importance of communication and effective communication, turn-taking, turn-yielding, listening. And then if you know, having done all of that, there's still a challenge. You can bring in and go to your manager and you can say, okay, we tried this, we tried that. We have now reached this stage. How can you help us? So it's all about empowering the lower level staff. And even amongst leaders, leaders and fellow leaders may also have this challenge. So it can happen at every stage of the organization, but you're ensuring that less of your time is taken up being this third party to quell a situation and dealing with it in a way where there'll be a downward spiral. So empower those parties, empower your constituents and your employees to take on that challenge of dealing with this effectively. Have regular employee engagement activities surrounded around these difficult conversations. Let people understand the importance about being confidential. If there's an issue between you and another person, don't go and brag about it around the whole office. And then we cause or we bring about cliques or there are cliques at the lower level, maybe trying to work against the leaders or the managers or the leaders or the managers coming down in the employees. There are many things that we can think about, but we ensure that the communication lines are really fluent and it's really moving at every level. And we have a culture of having these conversations and dealing with these things and going through the simulation, have a lot of simulation exercises. Think about what should I do in this situation? What is the expectation here? So when you do that, what you are really installing through your policies is a peer mediation program or protocol or system or design system internally to ensure that we are supporting our established and well-known culture of dealing with situations. And if we deal with it early, we prevent it from becoming such a big, massive challenge that is even more difficult for us to really treat with. So doing that now and as soon as possible in organizations, and even if they're not at that point yet, but helping them really get that information so they can start to think about it and maybe have a rollout plan. And I really like system design in handling all of these types of situations. And I think about where can we start and you don't have to really take a big, you don't have to cross a big chasm. You can really take small steps towards that goal and then really evaluate it, make sure get feedback, speak to your constituents, your employees, get a feedback loop, ask them what do they think we can do differently, make sure that that democracy is participative so that everyone knows that they are a part of the entire process. So that whole system design, that's how I really tell employers about it. And that's how I discuss it. And I think that's very important. That's the best way to start. And it ensures that every time that there's a conflict that really evolves into something so big, you're not bringing someone at that point, but you deal with it at every entry point. And at the point of the need, 
And I think that is what's going to ensure that there's no escalation to a point of beyond control where you have to pay all this money to deal with the situation or it ends up in dismissals or lawsuits or whatever it could be. Let's deal with it at this lower level by using peer mediation in the workplace and seeing how effective it can be. That's really good advice for organizations. Um, as an individual, if I wanted to, you know, look into some resources on, you know, to help me manage conflict and have difficult conversations more easily, what types of resources should I be looking into? Well, I would say there are different levels of resources. So the first level of resource is just educating yourself. You're never too old to learn. If something is bothering you, you use your social platforms, you use the internet, you reference books to get that information. So some persons may be on social media because they must, they must want to share about their life. No problem with that. But there's such an, an, an unhidden potential in social and, and on those social platforms, it's also a source of information. Yes, make sure and fact check because you want to ensure that the information that you're getting there is reliable. So yes, fact check that information. But there's so much information on YouTube, on Facebook, so many different groups that you can join that you can learn so much about. So educate yourself or educate yourself about other opportunities where you can enhance your competence and knowledge in this area. Where do I, where do I see myself in five years? Where do I want to be? Do I just want to know the basics about handling conflict or do I want to be certified in this area? What opportunities are there locally for me to understand more about mediation? So I know at the University of the West Indies, there's a postgraduate diploma, there's a master's. I did my master's at the University of the West Indies in mediation studies. It's an excellent program. And I know the, the program manager there, Ms. Andia, she's really excellent. Um, Again, if I do not want to do a postgraduate diploma, I don't want to do a research degree, I don't want to go through this entire thesis, I don't want to go through all of these, these courses, maybe look for a short 40-hour program where you can get in a compact style that level of training and understanding about dealing with how to handle conflict. And there are so many places that offer this. I am associated with the brand DSL, Dialogue Solutions Limited. I'm a city trainer with them in my, in my part-time. Um, that's my contribution with them part-time. I love working with them. That's one place you can also look. They're on Facebook. They have a website. There's a web page. You can find out more about how you can really become certified. So you get that training. You go through a lot of simulations. It's, um, it's blended learning. So it really works out for persons who are working, who are parents, who are busy. So it really works for your schedule. And you get all that information, you get that training, and you can use that as a platform to, to really uh, your competence and knowledge and eventually apply to the mediation board to be certified. And apart from the 40-hour training, there are so many other um, workshops and masterclasses that the DSL offers, Dialogue Solutions Limited, that you can learn so much about. Another thing you can do as well, you can look at different platforms where you can volunteer, volunteer after having that basic information. You can look at international platforms. There are so many groups that you can become a part of. You can become a part of a, of a network that can be regional, local, international. So you need to decide where you want to be in terms of the knowledge and competency level and then looking for all the opportunities and avenues that can help you go there as a, as a stepping stone and cascade from there. So it all depends. So there's the master's and diploma degree at the university. 
there are the short 40 hour courses like DSL and many other organizations through Trinidad and Region that offer that offers this. There are international organizations that offer this and you can become certified in Trinidad or in the region, or you can look at international certifications. But the first step is educating yourself, getting the information, fact-checking, reliable and valid information about the best ways to deal with this and start journaling. What I have realized over my years of really engaging in this field that I love so much is that I try to make a mental note or I have a place. I really like the, the writing so much, but I have a, a, an electronic place where I store some of the experiences I've encountered and what I did and what I could have done differently. And it is so important because it, it, it talks about reflective practice and really thinking about how did I feel? What could I have done differently? What was really done well? Was there something inhibiting my growth? Or was there something inhibiting my, up, my ability to, to respond or react in a, in a different way that I thought would have been best? Once you make those, those notes, it is important that you go back to them and you reference them and you use them for your learning. Because what that reflective practice really does, and, and Michael Lang, I, I don't know if he's an international scholar, Professor Lang, who really spoke about this with his colleagues, it is so important for us to remember that. And it is important for our growth. So we are going beyond experiential learning, learning actually that happens through our experiences, but we are not only forgetting what it was like and then using that as a framework and a reference guide for all future interactions. So we learn from it and our learning is so more bountiful, it is so holistic and we become, we become more embedded in the experience. And I think when we really take that approach, I think, the upward spiral will be so overwhelming that you just want to share it. You just are bursting from the seams because you want to share this and you want to learn from your peers. So it's not only about learning in silos, but sharing what you've learned and hearing so much from others and their experiences. So networking is an important part of this entire dynamic. Dr. Z, some really good advice um, from you for individuals and organizations. I really want to thank you for, for joining us on Leading the Ship and sharing all of this knowledge with us. I'm sure that my listeners would be very appreciative and, you know, that, you know, there must be some takeaways for each individual, um, no matter what it is coming out of the lessons that you've shared today. So again, I just want to thank you um, and, you know, just give you an opportunity to offer any last words before we close off. I want to say thank you so much, Cindy, for having me. I think this is such a wonderful platform. And I'm so happy that we can really take some time out from our schedules and really sort of catalog all of these experiences and these exchanges in a depository that persons can really reference. So I want to tell you thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm so happy that I have the opportunity to share and also to learn. We can learn from each other and even learn from the listeners who may comment or may respond. And um, my closing remark is no one is perfect. I have been doing this for years and I am not perfect. And I want you to remember that do not be really a prisoner of your past because some persons may have been doing things wrong for, for so many years and so many persons judge them. And that judgment is such a load that you don't know how to move forward to be better because you're afraid someone will reference some past experience that can now affect who you're trying to be now. 
just remember, let go of that burden, let go of that guilt. And even if it does happen, you just keep moving because what people cannot see is your heart and your intent. And if at times what comes out really looks different from what your, what your intention is, the effect through your behavior, you keep working at it. Once your heart is pure and you are very focused about what you want to achieve, you keep moving. It's okay to slump now and then, but do not stay there. Keep moving and do not let your past imprison you. Some people remember one version of you and it stays with them for life. You don't have to prove anything for any, to anyone. You just continue being a good person, continue moving and no longer be a prisoner and learn from it and don't do it to others. So don't judge others. Don't judge them for their past. If they're trying to do something good now, you just keep rooting for them. And what you saw in the past, you may not have known the whole story. Hurt people hurt people. And people who, are, who behave a certain way, they are hurting. So just be value-free, judgment-free. Keep moving. Keep doing good. And ensure that your heart and your intentions are always good. Cindy, thank you again for this opportunity. Thank you so, so very much. Today, we learned about some do's and don'ts when managing conflict, and that while we all have our own conflict management styles, the key is not to overuse one style, but to assess the conflict situation and let that be your guide in how you seek to address the matter at hand. Conflict management is a life skill that may set you apart as a leader. Thanks again to Dr. Paul for sharing her invaluable insight with us. Join us again on Leading the Ship as we address leadership and life lessons on our journey to becoming better leaders and people in general. <music>